At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for March 18th, 2021. The I'll get the vaccine if you give me a pony edition. I am David Plotz of <laughs> CityCast in Washington, D.C. I am so excited because we launched CityCast in Chicago this week. I'll talk more about that next week. I'm not going to talk about it today, but so excited. If you are a podcast listener or Chicagoan, please check out CityCast Chicago. I am joined in New York City by John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes. Hello, John. Hello, David. And Emily is on a reporting trip. And so we are so happy to have GabFest regular guest host, Josie Duffy Rice, president of the appeal, joining us from Atlanta. Hello, Josie. Hi, thank you for having me. Today on the GabFest, how big a deal is vaccine hesitancy, in particular Republican vaccine hesitancy? Then, how is the criminal justice reform movement going to respond to rising crime? And do those things have anything to do with each other? And then the ongoing obscene efforts to stop people from voting this week, Texas edition and Georgia edition, whatever, everywhere edition. <laughs> we'll talk about that. Plus, we will not be talking about the funniest story of the week in which Breyer's ice cream named former chief, former justice, not chief justice, Stephen Breyer, honorary chair of the company. Now that he stepped down from the Supreme Court, thanks, thanking him for his long service to the country. And because of his distant relationship to company founder William Breyer. We will not talk about it because, in fact, Justice Breyer has, is not actually related to Breyer's ice cream. And because he unfathomably has not actually stepped down from the court this week, much to my surprise. Plus, of course, we will have I cocktail really was chatter. Like, what did I miss this morning? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hey, Jesse, this is David's. <laughs> um, it's just been. To call this a hobby horse is really, um, it's, a, it's a full set of hobby stallions that he's been riding for a while. The New York Times has joined me. The <laughs> New York Times had a, had a big op-ed this week about how Justice Breyer, why have you not stepped down already? Come on. Uh, in any case, I apologize to you listeners for belaboring that, uh, this <laughs> bit. He apologizes and also ensures that it's going to happen again next week. Yes. Well, once Breyer steps down, I'm sure I'll stop. So <laughs> that might Maybe just make be him do him. it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Half of Republican men say they will not get a COVID vaccine if it's offered to them. That matches figures overall suggesting that about 30 to 40 percent of Republicans would reject a vaccine. Among people who identify as Democrats, those numbers are way lower in the 10 to 20 percent range. And for independents, it's kind of in the 30 percent range. So. Josie, is the partisan divide in vaccine hesitancy a thing? Is it a real thing? Do we think it actually exists? Or is this just something that people say to signal something? I think it's always hard to tell what people will actually do once they see other people doing it and it is safe, right? I mean, the levels of vaccine hesitancy were much higher a couple months ago before anybody had it, right? And now we're seeing our family and our friends go out and get it. They're living a more normal life. So who actually knows if it will happen? Um, but what I do find really fascinating about this is that the narrative for months was that black people 
or be too hesitant to get the vaccine. And it was a big conversation about, you know, Tuskegee and the history of medical experimentation on Black people. And I think it was coming from a place of understanding in, in a lot of cases. But I it, it just is hilarious because when you look at the numbers, right, the real group of people who are hesitant about getting this groundbreaking medical treatment are right-wing Republicans. John, do you think if there is a partisan divide, do you think, but do you think there's a partisan divide? Do you think that this is a real thing or simply one of the many sort of culture wars that people play out so that whenever they, they're expressing an opinion, they can express it in some way that is a tribal signal? Yeah, I mean, it, it, that seems to be the case both both in the polling and in the focus groups, but it's also mixed in with a huge jumble of things that make it hard to pull away. So you have the existing anti-vax movement, which existed before um, we even knew what COVID-19 was. You have partisanship, which we're talking about. Um, and then you also have uh, the, the general trust in government numbers, which are low. Um, and I mean, and... And then I guess what I would throw in there, I guess this is somewhere in between, which is you don't have to be a full anti-vaxxer. I was getting um, other vaccinations back in September and the nurse who was giving them to me, I said, boy, I can't wait till the for the COVID-19 vaccine. And she said, I think maybe I've told this story before. She said, wait, you're going to you're going to get it. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, she's in the biz (laughs) and Mm -hmm. she was hesitant. So um, you jumble all that together, but I think it's pretty clear. um, And also our friend of the podcast, Dan Diamond, did a piece in the Washington Post on a Frank Luntz um, um, focus group that suggested a lot of these views were politically tinged kind of globally. People don't trust politicians, but then on the Trump side were, you know, were particularly acute um, so well, well, but John, I thought what was interesting about that Dan Diamond piece about the Luntz focus group was that, in fact, yes, it was clearly politics was driving the hesitancy. This was a it was a focus group of quite conservative people who came into a focus group highly hesitant about taking the vaccine, left it less hesitant because of some things that Luntz did, and he claims are 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 scalable. But it, one of the things was they didn't seem to receptive to being told by Trump to take the vaccine, that it wasn't that if Trump himself was out there saying, get the vaccine, they would be enthusiastic about it. They were kind of skeptical about all politicians. They were skeptical about being told. They were skeptical about it being sold to them too hard. And what and it's hard to read too much into a single focus group. But what Luntz was saying is they people wanted sort of a, a reason a sort of frank assessment of the risks and the risks of not taking it. And that they wanted the facts presented to them by people, messengers who read as sympathetic and as not particularly political. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if like you can generalize from that. But I I did think it was interesting that actually Trump didn't seem to be the key to unlocking it. No, but he's the key to causing the um, hesitancy to creating the political connection between science and the ugliness of politics. And Kevin McCarthy in that piece, when they had, I thought it was interesting, they had some Republican officials try to make the case for why you should get the vaccine. And Kevin McCarthy was one of those politicians, the Republican leader in the House. And before Trump making the case, he showed exactly why people are hesitant, which is he said, now I know the drug companies didn't release their data saying the vaccine was okay <laughs> until after the election, which is a lie. Okay, so he front loads the lie that's created the kind of suspicion that makes people hesitant before then giving the the uh, anti-hesitancy movement. I mean, it was like perfectly encapsulated. But I thought the the focus group, as you say, don't judge, uh, you know, be careful about too much 
putting too much weight on one focus group, but it did affirm what Charles Dewey wrote about at the beginning of the pandemic, which was all public health officials say, get the politicians out of the way, have the conversation with the people, just be public health officials. Mm. Although, although the thing that we saw with Trump, sorry, Josie, it was yeah. just, just the, the thing that we saw with Trump was the way in which public health officials were politicized, even though they weren't political, that Fauci is, is not trusted by millions of Americans because he's been turned into a political ragdoll. And to your point, David, I mean, this is just sort of the intro. This is this is conspiracy 101, right? This is how people get into a universe of of conspiracy theories and not trusting anybody in government. And, you know, when you've had a president who, A, has on one hand lied to the American people over and over and over again about things that don't matter about anything, right? Where you just really don't feel like you can trust the basic ground the free leader of the universe is walking on. And then on the other hand, has really encouraged this level of unreasonable and baseless doubt. Then you create an environment that's perfect for something like this, perfect for a group of people who are unwilling to take a vaccine. I mean, when you think about the pandemic, it almost couldn't have happened in this way at a worse time. We're at more people kind of believing in these these conspiracy theories and this basic distrust of if kind of everything, every kind of right. institution, right, than we ever have been right. ever. Right. The, the, uh, yeah, just to jump on that point, I saw a really interesting uh, sort of exchange this week about conspiracy theories. And, and the problem with conspiracy theories these days isn't that people believe crazy involved conspiracy theories, it's that they don't believe things that are true. Mm. It's not that they believe things that are untrue, it's that they've learned to doubt anything, including things that are true. And that's where you, with a vaccine, like it is a perfect opportunity for that because the vaccines, of course, aren't perfect and they do cause side effects mm -hmm. and they are not, and they are perfect and they haven't been fully tested. You know, we don't know the 20 year results of this. We don't know what might happen. We do have to make a bet. And so if you can, like what conspiracy theories have become really good at is sowing doubt in people about things they should not fundamentally doubt, mm -hmm. not about necessarily making people believe there are the people who believe that they're the crazy things are happening, mm -hmm. but mostly what's happened is lots of people have stopped believing things that they should believe it. Right. One of the things that we've found is what, a, what Amanda Ripley was telling us at the beginning of this pandemic, also from her studies of disasters, which is that people actually are fine with receiving unsettling information from the right sources. So, you know, the politicians always want to happy talk things, but actually that makes people uncomfortable. They're happy to, or not happy, but people will receive complicated information if mm -hmm. it's from the right source. And so everything we seem to be talking about and discovering from this is basically um, the politicians should get the hell out of the way, which is pre presents an interesting question for the Biden administration as they try to sell this. What they're trying to do is basically not necessarily attach it to the president, although he did mention it in his, his national address. Kamala Harris obviously contributed to the politicization when she said she wouldn't take the vaccine if Donald Trump told her to. So they're doing it through preachers and local and community people. And I wonder if we discover something in the way you can get a message out that is non-political that can then be used on other issues. So actually, Josie, can I ask you a question about that, sort of following up on that, which is you began by talking about how the irony that we, that there was this that the 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 way this story was pre presented at the beginning of the vaccination campaign was oh it's that black americans are you know hesitant to take it and that that narrative has shifted do you think there are any lessons 
from what's happened in black America around the vaccine that are applicable more generally? I think that um, vaccines are a complicated conversation, that we have never figured out how to have them in in an effective, um, reasonable way in this country. That on one hand, we have people, you know, we have this entire anti-vax movement, which has gone from being sort of crunchy granola people to, to... sort of Ammon Bundy hold up in their house, you know, anti-government and in so many ways. And then on the other hand, we have people who are unwilling to talk about the fact that, like you said, we don't have a 20-year result from this, right? I have pregnant friends getting the vaccine. That's, That's scary for them. There are all these sort of conversations that I think in a reasonable political environment or a reasonable social environment we could have. And I think that's true in Black communities as well. When you have grown up in communities that the government has persecuted historically, when the government tells you to do something, you could understand why there is maybe second guessing of that. When you have an effective rollout, I mean, here in Georgia, where we're ranked really low on the list, which is shocking to me because we, I think for once, our state has done a very good job of, of vaccine rollout, right? And you see, you can go to the airport and if you have a, you're on the list, you can get the vaccine very quickly. It took my husband literally three minutes. I mean, this level of publicity and transparency around it has made it less scary, I think, in in some black communities. I don't want to speak for everybody, obviously, but it certainly does not seem to be politicized in the way that it's been politicized um, on the right. To, to the point about Kamala Harris, I think she's, she said, if only Donald Trump not and mentioned that if public officials supported him, she would, you know, public health officials, she would, she would get it. But you can see why when there is a president in office, and for some people, look, people think Biden stole the election. You know, there, there is a whole kind of, there's a whole fundamental basis behind not trusting, um, not trusting him as an elected official that does come from Donald Trump, uh, that does make some of this hesitancy, at least predictable, if not sensible. And I think one other thing, David, we can is um, if that focus group is interesting, it might be because it matches the the work that's been done in deliberative polling, which James Fishkin has been um, studying at Stanford, which is when you get people together, you give them information from a non-political source. They can, in fact, the hardest partisans can get to a kind of uh, more reasoned understanding, which offers a little hope for maybe tricky other issues. I always wonder about those things is that what yes in this hothouse environment people are able to move and they people there's a there's a strong pressure for social accommodation and for social uh lubrication and for agreeing with other people that once you get back out into an environment which is hostile to vaccines or hostile to whatever was discussed in the this focus group does any of that stick i've always wondered about that i mean it does it 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 declines after you get back but it, it but it sticks longer um, and if you do it relative to like if there's a public referenda or something that the timing is interesting. But, yeah, over time, it does. Um, it does. People do tend to go back to where they were. The Derek Chauvin trial is getting underway in Minnesota, but criminal justice reform, police reform also are not as far along as maybe we expected them to be after George Floyd's murder 10 months ago. Police departments continue to operate in most places, more or less as they did Incarceration continues to persist at shocking rates. Reform efforts continue to get blocked at most turns, usually by police unions or by Republican governors and legislatures. Um, and crime in a lot of places is rising and violent crime is rising or is has risen. So, Josie, there's a lot of 
<laughs> issues all intertwined here. But just starting with, are you surprised how little reform there's been to criminal justice since the BLM protests of the summer or how much there's been? I am surprised at how much there has been. I think that actually getting police departments nationwide to shift their priorities, change their budgets, that is a decades-long project, right? I mean, I think that we are talking about one of the most entrenched American institutions that exists. It has been one of the most powerful interest groups for over a century. And I think that we are facing a long project of when we are talking the real policy, when you're talking budgets, when you're talking legislation, when you're talking local, local regulation, that's a long project. But what you also see is that, I mean, the Washington Post ran a huge op-ed just a few days ago called Reimagining Safety, where they say, we're not saying you should defund all police departments or everything about the police, but yes, we should shift resources from the police to other social services. We should rethink what the police do and how much they need to be involved. That's massive. Nine months ago, the phrase defund the police was not even something most people had ever considered. Josie, do you think we've been rescued from the binary way that this was being talked about, which was, you know, you're pro-police or you're defund the police, that's it, and then everybody fights? Do you th the post piece seems to be trying to work in, in a new consensus. I think that most people traditionally have been somewhere in the middle, right? When you really ask them, when you really say, should police be in control of, I always tell this story, but a couple of years ago, a hawk, a huge hawk flew into my house in the middle of the day, in the middle of work day, into the room where I am, okay? Flies in to a glass window, shatters the window, a squirrel came into, it was, it, and I'm not an animal person, <laughs> okay? And I freaked out. This was right before Christmas. It was a Friday afternoon. And I called animal control. Here I am with like a young child at home. My, my mother-in-law's in a wheelchair. She was with us. Um, and I call animal control and they're like, ah, we don't do birds. <laughs> call the police. Okay. I call the fire department and the fire department's like, ah. My fire department's like, do you have a husband who can help you? And I was like, ah. That's a good line. Do you have a husband? Literally. It was very Georgia. Okay. And they're, and, and they're like, call the cops. I mean, as if the cops are here to catch my birds, right? That's not why someone joins the police force. So what what we have been doing is siphoning wait, out resources. Wait, what happened with the birds? Okay, so the bird eventually flew out itself and that took the squirrel till the next day. It was a very Did, emotional experience. Have you got, wait, I'm just about to give you guys the gift of the day. The best This American Life episode that has ever been is about what happened when a squirrel got into the house of somebody and they called the cops. Oh my and God. It's told by a cop who goes to get the squirrel out of the house. It's the funniest funny thing I have ever heard. I am you going to, to I'm going to listen to this immediately. How has, I've told this story a million times. How has nobody told me about this American <laughs> Life episode? So, but you know, it was just such an indication to me. And, and if you ask most people in the country, they're going to say, no, the cops should not be showing up for your animal control, right? They shouldn't be showing up for someone in the midst of an episode of mania. They shouldn't be showing up in situations where they're not trained at all to handle those situations. Now, I can imagine a world where we don't need, um, you know, law enforcement in the way that we currently have it. But not everybody has to get there tomorrow. The fact that it's in people's heads, I think, is a major, major shift. Um, and I, I, I worry about the current levels of, of, crime rising, because I, I do think that people draw connections between 
law enforcement and crime in ways that it's actually not as um, as direct as we'd like to think it is. But I still I, think I would, that there's a shift. I would just like to make a side note, which is that what is clearly needed in Georgia is animal control <laughs> reform. Right. Because if the animal control people right. are like, we don't do birds, right. there's something there's really something wrong, wrong with wrong, the animal. Right? I, I called a is, bird specialist, okay? I called a bird specialist, a private bird specialist, who also told me I needed to call the cops. I mean, it was like... For and especially telling me this, right? It was just it felt like I was in some sort of prank, a long episode of punk or something. Um, so Josie, can, can we dig in a little bit on the? Sorry, I'm. You're finding like joy in my in the, birds. In, in the hell that yes, I experienced. I absolutely, understand. I'm just thinking about you guys listening to the squirrel episode of This American Life. <laughs> so, I think one of the questions that that, and maybe there is an answer to this, is that we've had this long period of of declining violent crime and declining murder in this country and kind of almost miraculous period when you think back to where we were 30 years ago. And then now we've seen this recent spike up, but even with these spikes up, it's, we're still well below where we were way, way, way below where we were uh, in the eighties and nineties. But to kind of understand this spike, it feels like we still need an explanation for why it declined, like to, to, to know why it's rising, we have to have at least a theory about why it declined. And I've never seen anyone who, who could give me the theory, like, oh, this is the, these are the three reasons mm-hmm. why we had such a long, persistent decline. And therefore, when we see the spike, we should worry because X or we should not worry because Y. Do you, can you offer that theory? Well, I can tell you that I think the reason that there isn't one kind of cohesive reason or even three is because crime is complicated and the fact is that the reason that crime declined has to do with a a couple different things has to do with the fact that people have had better job opportunities that maybe they've been able to put food on their family's plates that we've had a conversation about social services it has to do with after school programs i mean a lot of what you're seeing right now when we talk about crime is coming from young kids in a pandemic age who aren't in school and maybe don't have don't have anything to distract them it has to do with a change in the way that we consider domestic violence and not just a legal change because actually we have not gotten much better at handling domestic violence in the legal system but a social change a cultural change it has to do with you know access to the internet and the ability to connect with other people and the ability for ideas to spread so america is in this kind of very interesting position and has been for the past 30 or let's say the past 10 15 years right which is that crime in america is lower than it ever has been but crime relative to most other countries um, is high, right? We have a high level of crime compared to Canada, compared to a lot of different places um, in Europe. We we aren't as bad as we were, but we could be much better, especially considering the fact that we have the highest incarceration rate in the, in the world, right? And the fact is that um, there are countries with very low levels of civilian crime. You can look at Norway or uh, Iceland or, um, you know, some countries um, in Eastern Europe where the levels of, of, of crime are actually quite low. Or you could look at North Korea, Right. And you can create a world where civilian crime is almost non-existent if you imprison everybody. (laughs) And if the the, you know, if the punishments for doing something very small are very high. But is that the kind of world we want to live in? And that is the real question to me is that we can ensure a safer world. That safer world has to be supported by quality health care, by by jobs, by opportunities for kids um, and, 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 you know, by economic opportunity. These are the things that 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 make it less likely that people decide to 
commit crimes, especially violent crimes. John, do you think the politics of either the criminal justice reform or penal reform have changed because crime is rising? Well, I guess I think of it in two ways. One, connecting to our last conversation about vaccine hesitancy, one of the things they've learned with that is that public health experts have decided that the best way to get positive information out and have good outcomes is if it's hyper-local, hyper-personal, and apolitical, which makes me think that's true of all reforms. So so it, when we rethink public safety, the worst thing that can happen is if the national politicians get involved. That's the first thing that I think about with the politics of this. The second thing is I'm struck by when we've talked about before, what kind of market did Donald Trump um, create? And he obviously has created a market there for Republicans. But I've been struck that Republicans have been talking about Dr. Seuss and immigration, but not doing, not picking up what Donald Trump tried to do in the last election, which was basically turn it into uh, a George Wallace, Richard Nixon, safety in the suburbs um, campaign. And he tried very hard, remember the Republican convention, and it didn't work. In fact, it turned off um, a lot of voters, particularly in the, in the suburbs, and 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 so what I'm curious about is there was obviously then there was a discussion among Democrats after the election about whether saying defund the police actually hurt Democrats in those moderate districts they're going to care a lot about in 2022. But as we have the elections in 2022, do Republicans pick up on the rising crime numbers and run the Trump playbook, which failed? Or do they choose to talk about other issues, which gives you some sense of how there might be a different political environment for public safety reform than we might have seen before in these debates? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that the history of Republican politics and and traditionally Democratic politics, too, has been playing to fear um, and that they will play to fear again. It works very often. Right. But in part of the reason it has worked is because there always there hasn't always been an alternative view of what's possible. And I think about James Foreman's book. Locking Up Our Own, that won the Pulitzer a couple of years ago, where he talks about how in many communities in the late 80s and 90s, right, black politicians and, and, and black community leaders wanted more police. They wanted more law enforcement, right? That was not unusual. The problem is that they also wanted more jobs and they wanted more schools and they wanted more green spaces for their kids to play in and they wanted early childhood education and they really just got more cops. And I think the longer that we try to kind of, you know, project this con onto people where what we're basically saying is the only way for you to stay safe is for cops to be on every corner. The only way for you to stay safe is for your kid who's in the throes of a drug addiction to go to jail. The only way for you to stay safe is for when you call the the cops on your mentally ill neighbor, you risk them dying. I don't think those are our choices. That binary is our choice. And so I am sure, I'm sure Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley and everybody will point to every single, you know, rising crime indication. They will point to black communities and they will say, this is what Democrats have done to us. But the truth is that this has been a bipartisan project for decades that has combined with austerity, combined with the welfare queen narrative, combined with a a dismissal of public health solutions, and combined with a dismissal of the evidence. And hopefully we are seeing people more willing to consider an alternative than just cops. Slate Plus members, you support the work that we're doing here on the GabFest, the work that's being done on other Slate podcasts, and the work that Slate is doing overall. 
And you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts and benefits like no ads on Slate podcasts. So I appreciate it. If you consider becoming a Slate Plus member, it's only a dollar for the first month. And you can sign up by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Our bonus segment this week is uh, about things that we wish we could encounter for the very first time. When you think back upon that moment of that sudden joy or shock when you when you read something for the first time that changed your life or ate something or heard a song and and the things that we wish we could encounter again for the first time because it was so revelatory. We're going to talk about that on Slate Plus today. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Texas is now joining Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Arkansas, Utah, almost every state that starts with almost any letter and votes Republican, and having its state legislature move to enact draconian voting restrictions. The Texas move or set of moves, I mean, it's a really expansive set of restrictions they're opposing, proposing in the legislature are very funny uh, because they're made in the name of fraud. And, and this week there was a wonderful set of news reports about the Texas attorney general's investigations into voter fraud in Texas. They, Texas AG Republicans spent gazillions of dollars on a huge task force to investigate voter fraud in one, I think mostly it was only in Harris County or at least was focused on Harris County, a highly democratic and highly black county in Texas, and found basically none after spending a ton of money. You know, found just just essentially no examples of it of any sort. So, um, what is going on here, Josie? We've talked about this in the context of of the twenty twenty election, and we've we've had this conversation in bits and pieces over the past few months. But what's what's going on in the state legislatures? What's going on in your home state of Georgia? What are they trying to accomplish here? You know, we're facing the biggest infringement, the biggest degradation of voting rights 
since the 60s. That's what we're facing at this exact moment. And it's actually quite terrifying, I think, for any community that's right to vote has kind of been at risk in the past 40, 50 years. People kind of discuss Donald Trump's attempts to steal the election and say he was not successful. And I agree, he was not successful in winning a second term. He will be successful in imparting fear and doubt and sowing even more mistrust into the voting process. He will be successful at allowing people in bad faith, because this is bad faith. People actually know, I mean, people in charge actually know there's virtually no such thing as as voter fraud. Certainly not in any way that has shifted elections. Voter suppression is a much bigger issue. But they will be successful um, in many states in making it much, much, much more difficult to vote. That threatens to come again with criminal prosecution here in Georgia uh, in the 2012 election. There was a woman named Olivia Pearson, who was a city councilwoman in Coffee County, which is a southern county, pretty small. She was arrested and forced to face trial twice and faced felonies that could have had her in prison for almost 15 years for working as a poll worker, which she signed up to do. And then um, when, a, when a first-time voter came in and asked how the machines worked, she told them. She just told them how the machines worked. She didn't go over there and help them use the machines. She didn't touch anything. She just said, the woman said, how does the machine work? She told them that apparently wasn't her role. And this woman almost went to prison for 15 years. I mean, on the second on second trial, she was acquitted. This sort of thing really scares people into not voting. So not only is it hard, but it's it's possibly criminal. It creates an environment where what happened in Georgia, here in my home state, due to my county, due to the county right over ne- right next to me, will be virtually impossible to happen again. Wait, what do you mean? What will what will be impossible to happen again? We went blue in the general election. We went we we elected two Democratic senators. That was shocking to everybody. It was shocking to the left and the right in the state. I I don't think they're going to let us do that again. I really, really, you know, think they're going to do everything in their power not to do that. There was a beautiful piece by Van Newkirk in The Atlantic a couple of weeks ago about the death of his mother. She died the day after, I'm sorry, the day that we found out that Biden had won. And she was born the day that the the, the Voting Rights Act was passed. And just what a short time that is. He lost his mother very early, right? And And framing her life as sort of the beginning and end of voting rights for black people in this country. Um, And I think that's what we are facing and not just black communities, poor communities, any communities of color, any communities that won't solidly go Republican, because how else are they going to keep being a major player in the shaping of the future of America other than suppressing votes? They don't have the numbers. It's a civil rights crisis, right? It's a crisis of democracy. There's a really interesting Ross that piece in the times which made a point which which i think might be tactically true although it's it's strategically alarming i mean ross ross is arguing that republicans should be careful what they wish for because it there is a narrative that they have that it's the low information voters the low turnout voters are democrats and if we suppress voting uh we're going to drive down democratic votes overall and that will help help us hold on to power and Ross is saying like that, maybe that isn't true anymore. Maybe that actually the low information voters and the mistrustful voters and the voters who are un- less likely to turn out are in fact Republican voters and that efforts to suppress the vote overall, like, let's set aside the fact that there are specific efforts to suppress votes in areas that are like highly democratic and highly black. Let's set that bit aside. But let's insofar as these efforts are to suppress the vote generally, 
like suppressing the vote is not necessarily going to help Republicans in the future in the way that it has in the past. Do you think that that is there's anything to that theory there? Well, there it depends how you slice it. Um, I mean, to Josie's earlier point, um, if Republicans think that they can't just rely on white voters anymore, then these efforts in their future are um, if you cut it by race, then you're then they're in trouble. If what taking off Douthat's point, if you assume there might be some low information voters who are not white that Republicans can attract, then then it's a problem. But it depends which part of the country you're talking about in where, where and as you already talked about, some of this is, I mean, in Harris County in, in Texas is a heavily blue area. The low information voters in Ohio and Michigan are more the key to the Republican base in the, in the Midwest. So it depends on where these um, suppression efforts are being directed. Although based on the Brennan Center, there are 250 of them by their count. They're pretty much taking place everywhere. And just one one little point on Texas, to Josie's point about bad faith, when Governor Abbott talks about, you know, well, there were quite, people were concerned about fraud. People were concerned about fraud because the president was lying about it. And so it right. is a way in which the president has created. Think about this for a moment. The president tried to create a commission, the president, his presidential advisory commission on election integrity to look into fraud. The states told him to go pound sand and didn't give him the data and they couldn't find any voter fraud and they had to collapse the thing in 2018. That was such as it was the kind of proper way to try and do this. And they found nothing. So then he told a lie which has blossomed these efforts across the country among Republicans who want to go, who want to play footsie with his constituency without going fully to January 6th. And so through telling a lie, he has created this market in which now lots and lots of people are playing. And in order to play in the market, they can just say, you know, the people were concerned about fraud. They were concerned about fraud because something was said that wasn't true. Mm -hmm. President Trump was much more effective telling a lie than he was setting up a commission um, and which is just kind of an extraordinary thing about um, why this is such an important part of our culture to look at these efforts and and the arguments being used in support of them. I mean, I find that part of this just so infuriating that they that the narrative from Republican politicians has been we need to look into this so that people trust the voting process when the only reason they're not trusting the voting process has been the narratives coming from the president and these politicians, right? If you make up that the sky is green and then you need to d investigate whether the sky is green, it doesn't make it any more likely that the sky is green. But on the other hand, for decades, Democrats and particularly organizers and activists and people in black communities in particular have been saying we have a real voter suppression problem, right? It is a real problem that um, it's difficult for a lot of people for their vote to count. And this should be simpler. It should be more accessible. Um, and it should didn't take six hours in line to cast your vote. And that did not seem to set off any alarm bells in these Republicans that are suddenly so concerned about distrust in the voting process. So just the, the naked um, the naked partisanship of it, just the the complete bad faith assessment of what's going on is just another reminder of what we're up against. And and I would just tack on to that that there's another cost to doing to keeping this the animating myth alive about fraud 
the Department of Homeland Security, the Director of National Intelligence, Justice Department put out a, a report this week, or the the, the sort of public portion of a of a classified report was came out, and it talked about the elevated risk of homegrown extremism. And what does the Department of Homeland Security put its finger on as a propulsive force in that elevated threat? It's the President's President Trump's claim that the election was stolen. Mm. So it's not just animating 250 efforts to root out fraud that they can't find. By the way, there are 11 million voters in Texas. They found 16 in that fraud uh, hunt. 16. Yeah, and those 16, it's just like they put the fraudulent address down. Right. It's not even like that they were like, I am going to vote 17 times. Right. Right. Like, right. So they right. put a fraudulent address down. Okay. Right. Right. Um, I mean, shouldn't do that, yeah. but. I mean, you know, all, half of the half of the the Trump White House was voting in places they didn't live, so right. they were putting fraudulent addresses down too. Right, John. I want to end this on HR one, which is the big voting rights bill that is now starting through Congress. It's a huge sweeping bill. I don't think there anyone thinks that it's going to pass uh, as it is, even if the filibuster were swept away, in the sense that there probably are not fifty Democratic votes right. in the Senate to pass this bill. I'm, I, I guess I don't even want to talk about the bill. Do you think this bill is the trigger for there to be a change in filibuster rules? Do you think that is going to happen? I think it's unlikely just because, as you say, there may not be a there isn't a majority of Democrats in support of it. So if it's if you're going to change the filibuster and then fail, it seems to me that's not a good idea. The bill that you need if you're going to change the filibuster, however you choose to do it, whether it's a tiny little bit, you make it a, you ensure that it's a talking filibuster, which has its downsides, by the way. But um it needs to be a bill that the basically mansion of West Virginia and cinema of Arizona are willing, who have, who are highly resistant to, to filibuster change, would be willing to do that thing they're resistant to in the name of, and H.R. 1 is not it. What's interesting to me, though, well, maybe this is obvious because he's a politician, but Chuck Schumer said... All these Republican legislators are making it hard for people of color, for poor people, for students, young people to vote. We have to undo that or we'll lose the majority. So how are we going to do that? Well, if we can get some bipartisan support, great. But if not, our caucus will meet and we'll figure out how to get it done. Failure is not an option. But what does that mean? If you don't change the filibuster, which isn't going to happen on this bill, then what? How? what's he talking about? Um, that was... Strange. But one other thing I'd just like to tack on is that political science studies have shown that actually when people feel their vote is threatened and being taken away, that it can actually motivate them to go register, do what they need to do to go vote. And so it will be interesting to watch these efforts and how they may end up being basically a turnout the vote mechanism for Democrats who have, in particularly in Georgia and other states, used these efforts to mobilize their constituencies to do all the things that are required, even if a new hurdle is installed, to actually go out and vote and see if that effect is is uh, is in place in 2022. At some point, you put up enough obstacles, and even people who are highly motivated to vote just can't vote because they are just not allowed to, or their vote is a provisional ballot that's never counted, or they're you know they they literally can't get you know they the vote the hours when you can vote sure. do not coincide but, with hours right. they can go vote right. so so i but, think it's but but this is starting i mean sure all that's true but if if this is happening now and it becomes uh, a, 
a motivation. I mean, we're talking, we're a long way away from November 2022. And it becomes a vehicle for outreach and for contact with those voters and making sure you're not purged and so forth and so on. It's a it's a reason to be in touch, a reason to be outraged this early, well before tw- November 2022. So it's not, it's, there are ways in which this can be an inroad to organization because people feel like something is being taken away from them. Yeah. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you have a squirrel <laughs> clambering around in the rafters, <laughs> you just want to not know that it's there. You want to pretend it's not there, and you want to just like have very loud conversation with your loved ones, pretending the squirrel is not there in the rafters. What are you going to be chattering about, Josie Duffy Rice? Well, first, I just want to clarify that I did not pretend the squirrel was not there. In fact, I cried for an entire day while the squirrel ran around in my bedroom. So just to clarify for the record. It ran around in your bedroom? Yes. It's going to be a whole podcast. We're just going to do next week. I'm happy to just do a whole. And we had to get a pool net. We don't have a pool, but we had to get a pool net from Home Depot to get it out. It will also be therapy. So I I feel I must compel. I'm compelled to tack on my own stuff flying around in an apartment story. So when I first lived in New York, we had a bat fly in the apartment. And it flew around. There was a lot of like tennis rackets and golf clubs and maybe chair to try and stop it. And ultimately, I think the brave Britain Stone took a pillowcase and put his hand in the pillowcase and then grabbed the bat, which was clinging for dear life to the molding of the pre-war building's ceiling and sent it out the, the, the window. I think that happened. But if you want a better explanation, not explanation, but a better rendition of a bat in an apartment or in a dwelling, there is the YouTube video, um, Irish Family versus Bat. Oh, that is so good. So good. I've so never good. heard of this. I've never heard of yes, it. I'm you, must, it you must look it up. Oh my um, gosh. A bat yeah. is really scary. They have unpredictable flight patterns. Oh, exactly. totally. Yeah. That's, they, yeah. They're basically flying squirrels. Yeah, yeah, that would be really scary. So the book that I love, 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 and I read a galley of it in December, and then I read it again just last month, is We Do This Till We Free Us. It is by Miriam Kaba, M-A-R-I-A-M-E. Miriam is just one of the leading voices and has been about not just abolition of the carceral state, but about accountability, relationships, how we talk about harm, how we really transform our idea of justice. And she she's a very reluctant writer. She always says she does not like to write, but here she is releasing this incredible, incredible book that I could not recommend more highly. Uh, and again, it's called We Do This Till We Free Us. John Dickerson, what is your chatter? My chatter is about something I stumbled on on um, YouTube, which is an an interview between Dick Cavett and uh, Sir Ian McKellen. He wasn't Sir Ian McKellen then. He was just a young, um, attractive actor. And first of all, Dick Cavett's interviews are fantastic. Anybody who wants to um, 
Think about the art of interviews. You should go just watch a bunch of Dick Cavett interviews. But anyway, it's Dick Cavett interviewing Ian McKellen, and they get into a conversation about the difference between the way you act on television and the way you act on stage. And he talks about how you can tell television um, actors from stage actors because of the, what because they don't know what to do with their hands. Because on stage, you know that everybody's watching, and so your entire body is um, is on stage, and so you have to know how to move. Whereas television actors, they're just in the frame, uh, and so they don't have to to worry about the rest of their body. And it's anyway, it's a wonderful breakdown of of that little fact. But more interesting to me was just the intense thought that Ian McKellen has put into what he does, which undoubtedly is why he's so good at what he does. Anyway, so as somebody who loves to hear people describe process, it's a um, it's a delightful little uh, interview. So you can just search for Cavett and McKellen, and we'll put a link to it on our uh, show page as well. My chatter, it's a very close to my heart this week. Uh, if you had a chance to look at the podcast charts this week, you probably saw that the Atlas Obscura podcast is in the top 10 of all podcasts. And I want to talk a little bit about it because uh, as many GapFest listeners know, I used to run Atlas Obscura. In fact, while I was there, I helped start this podcast, which is now finally born fruit. It's a daily podcast each Monday to Thursday. Dylan Thuris, the co-founder of Atlas Obscura, who is the most charming, winning, warm, kind of compelling person, takes you to some amazing place in the world. Uh, on an audio trip and visits the gates of hell, the flaming pit in the middle of the Karkorum Desert in Turkmenistan, or the Museum of Bad Art. Uh, and it's just a, it's a brief visit to some place that is wonderful and strange and marvelous. And it's a vacation from the mundane life that we all live episodes are less than 15 minutes. They're just little bursts of wonder. And you get to meet people in these unexpected places and find out what makes them so extraordinary. You may not be able to travel yet, but this is kind of the next best thing. And and I'm pleased to say I'm going to actually, I'm going to be on some of the episodes. I've, I have episodes coming up about, uh, about the Burnham block in Milwaukee and about a amazing cemetery in Vermont that I've been to. And, and uh, about a, a swimming pool hidden in the mountains in Iceland it's just a wonderful podcast. I really urge you to check out the Atlas Obscure podcast. It's available on all, all of uh, wherever, all the podcast app. It's <laughs> it's glorious. I'm very excited to listen to that. It's great. Listeners, keep sending chatter to us at, at SlateGabFest, tweeting them to us at, at SlateGabFest, uh, or emailing them to us at gabfest at slate.com. And uh, we hope to get your voice on the air talking about your your chatter. And this week, we've got a chatter from Rebecca Vernon. Let's hear it, Rebecca. I'm Rebecca in Washington, D.C. I was utterly delighted by a story by Andrew Chamings on SF Gate about Erwin Kreutz, a man from Bavaria who accidentally went to Bangor, Maine instead of San Francisco, California in 1977, and somehow didn't discover his error for several days. I loved it because it's a mistake that, as improbable as it seemed at the time, is even more improbable today, and because of the Down Easter's hearty embrace of their accidental tourist. <laughs> I can't wait to read that. It's, it's a super funny story. I read it. He got, he, 
the, the, there's a kind of sad subtext, which is that he was just he one of the reasons why he confused Banger for San Francisco. There's a whole bit about why he wasn't sure where the Golden Gate. There is a bridge in Banger, but it's not really the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> but he was very drunk the whole time. He was just like a real <laughs> drinker. And that was one of the confusions. <laughs> oh, man. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is our editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest. We chatter to us there. For John Dickerson and the ever brilliant and delightful Josie Duffy Rice of The Appeal, check out The Appeal. I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next week. And I think Emily will be back. Hello, Slate Plus. Josie, you're a, a lawyer, uh, and therefore you know the phrase of case of first impression, uh, where you've encountered something, a legal issue has never been presented before, mm-hmm. and it's so delightful and confounding and curious. And there is this experience that we all have, with whether it's with a, a song or a book or a, something you eat or a place you've been, where you go to it for the first time, and it is so amazing that you you are you it's just thrilling and you wish you could recapture that experience of encountering it for the first time because it was so transporting and i think this is different than the thing that you want to go back to again and again and reread because it's so good and so deep and you get something new it's about that that thing which which you were so floored by and you wish you could you could conjure that experience of being floored but you can't because maybe it's because you know what the ending is or because you just can't feel that same sense of surprise. And so I want to talk about the things that we wish we could encounter for the first time before. And I, th- and I don't, and I, and I think like, I'm going to, I'm going to, well, I don't know why I'm knocking this off the list, but there is this, I was thinking like, oh, actually it's the movie, the sixth sense, which is a great movie, but it depends on this element of this trick at the end of it that makes you see everything that came before differently. And I'm going to say like, that's not what we're looking for. But whatever. Mm-hmm. You can pick whatever you want. John, do you have a thing? You say it's not what we're looking for because it deliberately relies on that, whereas you're talking about a more yeah. serendipitous experience. I have mine quickly. Are, first of all, in and of itself, which we've already talked about, Eric Delgadio's show, um, um, it's rich in rewatching, but the, the first time experience, The Wire, I, uh, man, when I first, with The Wire more than Sopranos or any other thing, um, we're watching Shit's Creek and enjoying that like six years after everybody else. I, and I have exa- I feel the same way about Shit's Creek. That was on my list. I was like, wow, that is yes. Go ahead. Sorry. And then, but then there are other things like Star Wars where it can only exist in that time because if you watched it now, you would think like oh, it's fine, but it's it doesn't. It was it's it was so revelatory when it happened that I don't think it would it would work the same way. Anyway, those are my. Um, I have to say, I, I watched. Star- I'd throw in Hamilton. Josie Hamilton's a good one. I was just going to say, I watched Star Wars for the first time in 2016, and I have to agree. When you watch it at, you know, at 29 or however old I was, I was like, I'm not going to lie, guys. I don't see the appeal, um, which was which was almost ended in divorce, but somehow <laughs> we made it through. Mine is a food. Is that okay? Sure. Perfect. Okay. I. Love ice cream a lot. I eat a lot of ice cream, sometimes for breakfast. 
And I can't really do that anymore because my kids are home all the time. You can't have them see you eat ice cream for breakfast. But when they're not around, that's what I'm happy to do. And the first time I had Jenny's ice cream, my family is from Ohio. That's where Jenny started. And in Columbus, um, I had Jenny's ice cream. And I was like, I never knew that ice cream could be this amazing. So whatever, when you ask this question, David, my first thought was Jenny's ice cream because it's just so good. And I can never, it's still good, but it's not as surprising anymore because I've had it right those are great examples I think for me for the food for me is pho I remember when Mm. I was in my early 20s and Dara Montgomery my colleague at the city paper arranged an expedition out to pho 75 in Arlington and I didn't know what it was and I was just it was stunning and probably every week for the next 10 years or so I would get a bowl (laughs) of pho but it was that first time was it was a revelation. I, Hamilton for me too, John, because you and, and we I, saw I it we, we saw it together. We saw it together. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I had. Done, I knew almost nothing about it. Gabfest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com/gabfestplus to become a Slate Plus member today. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.